0: This is the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast.
1: Each episode, we ask a single question. To find the answers, we speak with experts and listeners like you.
0: This podcast contains explicit content. Please proceed with caution.
1: I'm Noah Michelson.
0: And I'm Karina Kolodny.
1: This week's question is, is YA fiction a better sex educator than sex ed?
0: I am not ashamed to admit that I love YA literature. Growing up, I learned a ton about my own body and sexuality from reading Judy Blume books. However, it wasn't until a very recent conversation with HuffPost culture writer Maddie Crum that Noah and I started to consider the link between YA literature and sex education. And we wondered if YA lit plays a more important role than textbooks in sex ed classes when it comes to educating teens about their bodies. So obviously you have the categorized distinction probably on the book jacket itself, but what is really the difference between a YA book and an adult book when it comes to sex and sexuality?
2: Um, You know, it's funny because a lot of adult books or so-called adult books have teens in them, so it's a fuzzy line between what's an adult book and what's a teen book. But one magazine that I read put it really nicely. It's called One Teen Story. And they say the main difference is no gratuitous sex, drugs, or violence, and the key word there is gratuitous. A lot of teen stories, as opposed to adult stories, are sort of fable-like. They have a moral in them, even if it's a subtle one. So in that case, sex is sort of addressed in a way that can be useful to the reader, um, and they can learn something from what they read.
0: Do you think we're seeing an increase in the amount of sex and sexuality that's expressed or playing out in these YA books?
2: I think it's hard to say. I mean, obviously, Judy Bloom was doing it for a while, but and she's sort of still the master. <laughs> but um, I think the way that it's being talked about seems different, for sure.
1: So to help us understand the world of YA lit and how it's influencing teens, we're going to be speaking with authors Megan McCafferty and Emily Danforth. We're also going to talk to Amy Lang. She's the founder of Birds and Bees and Kids, which helps parents and other folks get over themselves and get on with the sex talks that kids need to have.
0: Whether you're a parent or a former young adult or just a grown-ass woman who loves YA as much as I do, I think you're going to learn a lot. Stay with us.
3: What? I know I blushed, even in the dark, even still half asleep and unable to get over how she was right there inches from me. I could smell the scope she'd gargled with before bed, the pink Johnson & Johnson baby lotion she put on her feet and elbows every night. Last night and before, you were dreaming and I woke you up. I said your name. I didn't know you had, I said, turning away from her toward the wall, but not all the way. I'm fine now. I wasn't fine. I was buzzing and turned on, and this conversation was getting in the way of the concentration it took to make that go away.
0: That's Emily Danforth. She is a fiction writer, YA novelist, and professor at Rhode Island College. Her debut novel, The Miseducation of Cameron Post, was published with HarperCollins in
1: 2012. Cameron, the novel's protagonist, is a young girl in Montana who's discovering her sexuality. Emily also grew up in Montana, and she bears a lot of similarities with her character. Karina recently had the chance to interview her.
3: I have this joke. I call it a a coming-of-gage novel. Um, (laughs) And and actually, I have to give credit. My friend, uh, who's who's also a fiction writer, nonfiction writer, Dave Madden, kind of came up with that. And I told him I would give him credit for it. But I I think it's a a better way for me to think of it... um, you know, because while there, there's a kind of coming out for Cameron, the main character, certainly in the story, and, and a kind of acknowledging of uh, her sexuality and her romantic feelings and, you know, a number of other things, there's a lot of me and Cam. Um, a big chunk. It seems like people always want a number, you know, and I 62% or something, but there, there's a lot of me in this character. There are plenty of things that are, that are fictional, really important things. I I didn't thankfully grow up an orphan. My parents did not send me to conversion or reparative therapy. Um, you know, there are some real significant differences, but the, the landscape, the sense of place, um, some of Cam's feelings of, of guilt um, and uncertainty and shame about this burgeoning sexuality. Those, those I just pulled right from my own experience. Um, and you know, I, I, I did not make out with as many girls as Cam did, but I did make out once with a girl in a barn. So I, you know, I have that, that specific scene in common. Um, there's a lot. I mean, I think there's a lot of me in this book. I don't know that I'll ever, I'll ever again. You know, I don't know that I would be able to write a, a novel that's quite this personal or feels like it's got a, as much of my early life in it.
0: So that being said, what sort of feedback have you received on the book?
3: From Milesidians or in general? <laughs> I guess let's hear about
0: it from both.
3: Um, you know, I was nervous. I think uh, that these that people in my town or in, in, in Montana might, um, uh, you know, I think they were nervous. I should put it this way. I think people a couple of reactions from people who know me. One would be because there are these autobiographical elements. Um, people, of course, search for themselves in the book or they, they want to take the cast of characters and, and kind of run through them. This has been the most common reaction say, okay, this, per- this is this person, this is that person. And that doesn't work. Um, right. It does not line up that neatly at all. Um, and the other thing that's been really, I think, um, kind of wonderful is a number of, of people who I went to high school with said, we heard this book was coming out. You know, I was not out in high school. I didn't feel like it could be out in this small town. And I and I felt like I very much had to move away to come out. I mean, I knew that I was gay, and I thought I can't do that here. I've got to go elsewhere. Um, and so, the, you know, these people knew the book was coming out, and, and right before it came out, they said to me, we kind of braced ourselves to open this up and see all our dirty laundry aired, and and we braced ourselves for this sort of, you know, we knew what the book was about this this really negative portrayal of Miles City and Eastern Montana and And they said so they were pleasantly surprised to find that to find that there's a lot of love in these pages for this small town and I think that's true. I mean this was not a, a chance for me to skewer this small town. There are a lot of things that I loved about growing up in this town and a lot of opportunities that I have and that cam had growing up in this town um, there was also a lot of shame around any discussion of sexuality and certainly queer sexuality queer lives um shame and and sometimes violence and and bigotry and so that you know obviously shows up in the pages too um, often religiously motivated. So, but, but, but again, I think the the surprising reaction is people saying it's not just all condemnation. There, there is some love for the small town experience. Um, more broadly, I think the book has been really well received by, uh, teen readers and critics. Um, it was banned somewhat recently in Delaware. And I guess if I thought that was going to happen anywhere that it would happen maybe in Montana, but, um, it was Delaware of all places that that action was taken.
0: I don't understand how a person, in all seriousness, can attempt to ban a book without immediately drawing a comparison between themselves and Hitler. Mm -hmm. Like, I know it always goes back to, like, the Hitler comparison, but I cannot imagine doing that and and not realizing just – like historically what banning books
1: means. It, it also, yeah, in 2015 that we still ban books, not, not us, right. but people do. And the fact that people at this point don't just say, okay, there's a book that exists, I don't like its content, let's talk about why I don't like it, but the idea of just banning something. So often these books too, they're banned because of the content that's sexual or is about, you know, sexuality.
0: Right, there are so many books that are so violent and they don't get banned, but no. almost all. All of the books that are on the top 10 most challenged book list have issues because they address sexuality. Totally. Um, But I have to say, I love um, the ALA, uh, which they challenge – keep track of all the band and challenge books. Like, right. and every year they come up with a list of the top 10 from school districts. It's the
1: American Library Association. Yeah. Correct. Librarians are heroes, I think. They are. Because they're a lot of the times the ones in the trenches who are fighting for these books. Right. And they realize that these books actually do have a huge, like we're talking about, a huge impact on kids.
0: Yeah. And, and that the, they're important. And
1: this is the way that a lot of kids are getting information, not just about sex and sexuality, but about the world around them, that they're not getting from their parents. They're not getting from, God help us, you know, E television (laughs) so uh, they realize how important it is
0: right well and the ALA banned books list is basically like my reading list for the year like whatever they whatever people are trying to ban I automatically am like what is in that it's so it's like even if you don't mind joining like a historical cast of characters that have turned out to be like evil, heinous people and banning books, right. I would think that you would think to yourself, like, this is probably counterproductive because this is actually, and it actually helps sell more books right. when a book is banned. Yeah. So as an author, I'd almost think maybe you're sitting there writing being like, I'm going to make this a little bit juicier. So like some uppity mom <laughs> in North Dakota is right. like, oh, hell no.
1: Nothing against our re- our listeners in North Dakota. We
0: love you, North Dakota.
1: But it's true. And and so, yeah, I do. I wonder what it's like writing one of these books or one of these sex scenes as as an author, and wondering one, how do I write this for teens? But two, what's the impact of this going to be and, and is this going to cause a controversy?
0: So the sort of the hypothesis behind this episode of our show is that young adult fiction often offers a lot more in the way of sex education than sex education does. Can YA literature compensate or fill some of the holes for the shortcomings in sexual education? What are your thoughts on that?
3: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think, uh, uh, it, it, I, you know, if, if just the, the teens that I hear from on a regular basis um, are any indication it, it does, um, it, you know, I, I I don't know that that – and it feels a little bit like a burden, that that burden is necessarily something that um, – we should look to just YA to do, but I think it is doing it. I think that that teens are getting um, information about different kinds of sexual expression, right? Um, Information about um, ways to have safe and protected sex, um, information about... Um, obviously sexual abuse and sexual assault from from the fiction that they're reading. Um, we talk all the time about why, uh, why literature ultimately providing windows for teenage readers and um, mirrors for teenage readers. So they're seeing their own experiences reflected back and they're also getting to look at experiences that they maybe haven't had yet but they you know are are worried about or sense looming or just want more information on so i i absolutely think it's it's there already in the literature and 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 whether teens are sort of seeking it out consciously um they are getting i think significant amounts of information Um, if i just think about queer queer sexuality alone lgbtq um sexuality and and portrayals of 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 um romantic relationships and and specifically sexual relationships on the pages, I I think that, you know, there's so much more there now than there was when I was a teenager, when I was actively seeking that out in all kinds of literature, not necessarily YA.
1: Having this conversation, Karina, makes me think about my own childhood and growing up in the books I I was reading and none of them had queer characters because I grew up in the 80s and uh, we still, you know, being queer was not something we talked about, Uh, people talked about, anyone talked about, So I had to superimpose myself over straight characters all the time. And I love to read, uh, but I did feel like I was missing something. And so I had to pretend to be the girl in the book because I was, you know, this young boy, crazy boy. And that didn't exist in reality yet. And that was really frustrating to me. Uh, But these days, kids have so many options, as we're hearing. And they can really find people that look or act or at least have the same experiences as them. I think that's really empowering.
0: Definitely. But I also think terrifyingly, you can juxtapose that against sex education, which hasn't changed that much since the 70s or 80s. So even though, you know, your your contemporary counterpart who is queer and growing up today yeah. might be able to see themselves in books, they are not getting the information that they need out of their sex education. Right. And I
1: think you told me that you found some statistics from somewhere that are going to shock and terrify me.
0: Yeah. uh, I mean, hopefully terrify everyone. Hopefully it'll catalyze some people to, you know, call up their state senators and get some stuff done. Because according to the Guttmacher Institute, which is one of the leading resources on um, researching sex and sex education and how it's implemented across the country, there are only 24 states where sex education is even mandated. I mean, we talk about abstinence-only sex education as, as being this terrible option, but there are only 24 states where that even has to be an option. And the other
1: 26, they just don't have to have any sex ed at all if they don't want to.
0: None. There are 13 states, 13 where sex ed must be medically accurate.
1: I love that that's even a stipulation. As though, you know, on the other side... Well, and for the rest of you, it doesn't have to be medically accurate. Make up whatever you want.
0: Right. Like, if you're homosexual, you know, or if you have homosexual tendencies, then, like, the devil is inside of you. Like, direct quote from Einstein. Right after E equals MC squared, the devil is inside homosexuals. Exactly. He and said it. Yeah. I'm your teacher. It must be true. That's terrifying. Um. So there are also, really unfortunately, three states that mandate... That when homosexuality is addressed it, or if it's addressed at all, it has to be within a negative context.
1: It's like, how?
0: 2015.
1: 2015. And yet we're still saying we have to teach kids that being queer is bad. Right. That's going to be part of the curriculum.
0: It, I mean, if we have to even teach them that queer is a thing. Even that, a thing. At all.
1: You know, as terrifying as all this is, at least we do have some people who are fighting the good fight and who have dedicated their lives to trying to help kids learn about their bodies and about sex. Um, Amy Lang, she founded Birds and Bees and Kids. It's this really cool um, foundation that's trying to teach parents, kids, everybody that sex ed is not a bad thing, that sex is not a bad thing. And if you're smart about how you um, talk to your kids about it, it can be really, really empowering. What do you find parents are struggling with the most? What are the most common um, questions or, or problems that parents come to you with?
4: I think the biggest issue for parents is that they really don't know when to start the conversation. So they don't know what age is appropriate to start the conversation. Then they don't know like what's too much information, so they have no barometer in terms of giving their kids... And it's really the real problem is that we don't give our kids enough information, so we err, parents tend to err on the side of caution, so they don't know when to start, they don't know what to say at what age, and then they also get hung up in a bunch of personal crap, like how they learned about sex influences how they talk about sex, if they have... You know a troubled sexual history, then that influences how they talk to their kids about sex, and so they don't generally don't understand that the more we sort of take care of ourselves as parents, the more we think about our sexual history and get help or support if we need that for the for past trauma. How that is just does a ton to help parent parents kind of settle down and settle into the conversations.
1: One of those tools maybe is YA literature, so I'm interested to, to hear your thoughts on sex, sexuality, those emotional, sexual um, components that you were talking about a minute ago and how those are playing out in YA and, and what you think about those as as being teaching tools,
4: well, I love that. Um, I actually recommend to parents that they give their kids uh, literature or books that have that are sexy and have sexual components, and that illustrate that sort of sexual tension and the conversations, and do it in a relatively healthy way. Um, I just gave my son a copy of *Clan of the Cave Bear*, which was mm. one of my early. Oh my god, I'm all pink cheeked and sweaty reading this. Reading this lovely book about cave people. Um, It's full of sex. And uh, I remember that being um, helpful in a lot of ways. And so I'm a super fan. I think that one of the benefits of like, I know Twilight's like dead and gone, but I'm sure people are still reading it. Uh, But one of the nice things about Twilight is how it just builds all that romantic and sexual tension. And it gives kids an outlet for fantasizing and experiencing that as opposed to where they're going to go, where most kids go to learn about sex and sexuality and get turned on, which is obviously internet porn. So it's a super healthy, fun, you know, creative in some ways, alternative. And I'm a a big fan. Like, please read sexy books. It's so much safer than reading,
0: than being online. I love Amy's work. And I think everything she's doing is super important and very much needed. That being said, my feelings about Twilight and whether or not they're a good book for young people to read do not quite align with their feelings about
1: that book. I can hear you're in pain, so coming up, we're going to let you air all your grievances with Twilight. Don't worry. We're also going to discuss how YA needs to evolve, and then we're going to talk about how one author is writing books and volunteering at New Jersey's High Tops to educate teens on sex.
0: If you haven't had a chance to subscribe, rate, or review Love and Sex on iTunes, now is the perfect time.
1: Every rating and review helps our show climb the iTunes ranking, which spreads sex positivity.
0: Of course, you can always email us if you have feedback or an idea for a show or just a question. Our email is loveandsexpodcast at huffingtonpost.com.
1: Okay, Karina, it's time to discuss your big feelings about Twilight.
0: Okay, I wouldn't call them. Big, but I definitely do have some feelings about Twilight. I agree that Twilight is great because it allows for this romantic buildup between the characters. And Mm -hmm. I think that's important. I also think one of the things that it does well is allowing this teenage girl, Bella, to have sexual feelings Mm -hmm. that she wants to pursue. But the majority of teenagers do not wait until they're married to have sex. What? I know. <laughs> really shocking to know. Probably just some parents out there, too, that want to just like like stick their fingers in their ears and be like, nah, 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 nah. But it's just not accurate. It's and true. so I think if you're talking about a really good model for, for sexuality and sexual experience, you want something that, that's actually going to address the fact that majority of the population is going to have multiple partners. Mm-hmm. And that brings a whole different set of you know, of issues and, and and realities that you have to deal with. Right. And that's the type of modeling that I would want for teenage girls in how to deal with sex and sexuality. And I think that we're really lucky because – Megan McCafferty, who we have on our show, did a really excellent job of doing that in um, her series, her Jessica Darling series, Hmm. Sloppy First and Second Helpings, which came out in 2001. And it was really so funny. It was so racy in 2001 that they couldn't be classified as YA at the time, even though it appealed to a YA audience and they read it and, and the sequels would ultimately end up. Being YA, so as we've discussed, a lot has changed in YA, and I had the chance to talk with her about the evolution of young adult fiction and what motivated her to write for such a young audience. Cool.
5: Well, I wanted to write for Sassy magazine. That was really my dream job, <laughs> um, and I know that Sassy now—you know—it's lived longer. Um, it's it's now like in the current consciousness, thanks to thanks to Rookie Mag and. Tavi, who is like a huge uh, Sassy Magazine fan. But um, so I knew I always wanted to write for a teen magazine. And um, I had actually gotten an internship at a Sassy Magazine when everybody lost their jobs there, mm-hmm. um, So, um, which might have been a warning for me about the state of the publishing industry. But um, I, uh, my first job was at YM Magazine, and my primary job was to be the assistant to the editor-in-chief. But my one editorial role was um, to read all the uh, reader mail that came Mm. in. And so every week I would read hundreds of letters from girls all over the country and all over the world. um, And really got like straight to the heart, real... like their real thoughts and the things that they really cared about. And I believe that like reading those letters gave me such an invaluable insight into the mind of a teenage girl. Um, And uh, I loved writing for teen magazines, but I think I always wanted to write fiction and I'd always written these kind of um, funny coming of age um, kind of vignettes about my life growing up on the Jersey shore And, um, I mean, those stories were what ultimately turned into my first novel, Sloppy Firsts.
0: So you approach sex in your YA books in a way that I think is really unique. Do you, was there any of that fan mail that was, you know, people asking questions about sex and sexuality, or do you think any of that was influenced by reading those early letters?
5: Absolutely. Yes. Um, I think, I mean, I was stunned by how little, information, so many of these girls, <laughs> the, the information that they were lacking, what they didn't know. I mean, everything from, can I get pregnant from kissing? You know, if if my boyfriend, you know, um, you know, comes in his pants and he's laying on top of me, can I get pregnant? You know, these are things that I thought, you know, had been well cleared up for, for um, you know, at that point in time. And I realized like just how little factual information girls had and also how they hungered to have somebody to talk to about this stuff. Um, As I said, I was reading letters that were addressed to the editor in chief or sometimes just to YM editors. And these girls were writing some of their deepest, darkest secrets about, you know, I mean, everything from, you know, i I want to have sex I'm horny is am I like a sex maniac is something wrong with me to you know I think I might have a crush on a girl am I gonna go to hell you know and the fact that they were writing these really intimate questions to a total stranger made me made me realize how um little uh, how few opportunities they had to have these kind of candid discussions in their real lives, and that's something that I found really sad and 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 stunning, quite honestly.
0: So, can you talk a little bit about the way that you approached sex and sexuality in the novels that you've written thus far?
5: Well, I've always wanted to write the type of books that I wish I could have read back when I was a teenager, and so. Um, I was tired of reading the, I mean just the very black and white virgin horror um, standards that you know the, the, these stereotypes that existed in in pop culture. Um, and I didn't see many depictions of girls in general teenage girls in general and and girls in their approach to sexuality that felt real to the way i felt when i was that age and so i remember being 13 14 15 16 and obsessed with the idea of sex with the idea of it because i wasn't emotionally ready for it yet but i remember being 13 14 and being obsessed with the idea of French kissing. Like, I wanted to French kiss and be French kissed so bad, so I thought, until it actually happened, and it was like, ah! Like, this is what I (laughs) wanted? This is disgusting! Um, And, you know, it's... And I remember... And so much of my sex life existed in my imagination. So much of my sex life consisted of fantasy and obsessing over my crush and and i felt like i wanted to ha i wanted jessica jessica darling to be a character who thinks a lot about sex um and isn't embarrassed by she's very she's not embarrassed by the fact that she thinks a lot about sex in part because she's expressing all these thoughts in this diary that nobody is ever going to read. And so because she is um she's she's like she puts it all out there because it's never going to be she's her deepest thoughts are never going to be exposed. And so as an author it gave me the freedom to have her say things and do things that were very liberating. Um, because she wasn't worried about being judged, where in her real life, outside of her diary, she wouldn't say these same things because she knew that she would be judged for it. Um, and I feel like a lot of, I, well, I know, I mean, I've gotten, I've heard from, I mean, thousands of readers over the years who say, thank you for having Jessica um, be so unapologi- unapologetically horny you know, like to, to actually, you know, acknowledge that teenage girls do get horny and it doesn't make you a sex maniac and it doesn't make you a slut. It It's healthy and normal to be curious about sex and maybe not act on it. And um, that was just something that I hadn't read a lot in in YA books. And so and it felt true to my experience, and I figured, well, if it's how I felt, hopefully there will be lots of girls who can also relate to those same confused, "Do I want to do this? Do I not want to? I would want to do this." Feelings that go along with coming into your your sexuality at that point in your life.
0: So you've spoken to sort of the history of of your book and the YA literature, and the fact that it wasn't classified as. Y A and but it would be today. So clearly we've made some strides. What do you hope for the future of YA literature when it comes to portraying sex and sexuality?
5: Well, what I think I think the greatest gains have been in the expansion of stories about LGBTQIA plus, um, you know, people along the spectrum of of gender and sexuality. Um, I'm actually right now I'm on the planning committee for um the New Jersey GSA um forum. GSA it used to be for Gay Straight Alliance, but now it's called the Gender and Sexuality Alliance. Um and part of me being on this um planning committee, I've just put it out that I've um put out a call to authors to donate copies of LGBT titles and um it's first of all it's been wonderful how, how generous people have been and how many books that I've gotten but also seeing the diversity within this within this category alone in in a way that you def, you didn't see 10 years ago um and that's really exciting to me um i mean the fact that like one of the best uh, romances that i've read in the past year um is is um is Simon and the Simon versus the homo sapiens agenda by Becky Albertalli, which is, a, it's a romance between two gay high school boys. I mean, but it's just as, um, the feelings that push pull of emotion and all of that, like, Oh, I got so caught up in it. It didn't matter that I'm not gay. Like it's just this beautifully written, really funny book. And that to me has been, um, it's just to see that kind of, uh, to see the broader culture at large embracing um, these um, non-traditional narratives is really
1: encouraging. So, Ms. Kalodny, if you have kids, what's your plan? How are you going to talk to them about sex? Will it be with YA books? Will it be with a PowerPoint presentation? <laughs> are you going to leave it up to the school system?
0: I definitely won't leave it up to the school system, although I hope, you know, when I do have kids and by the time they come of age, that system will have changed dramatically Mm -hmm. because I don't think that there's a good replacement for having these conversations amongst peers in a school setting. But I am going to have the conversation, and it's not going to be a type of thing where I, like, sit my kids down once and, like, we're going to talk about the birds and the bees. Right. Like that's not. It's going to be a constant conversation, and I, I. think my kids might go the other way in terms of like being really sex negative because I'm just like <laughs> talking about it all the time. They're like, oh, I'm not in front of my friends," right. you know. And it's right. like, "No, like you can get herpes from oral sex." And they're like, right. "Leave me alone." Yes. Um. But I will also definitely try and put a good dose of YA fiction in there because I think even though they are fictional stories and even though it obviously cannot replaced good nonfiction textbooks and conversations and and, and sex education. Mm-hmm. I do think that it's important for people to have these characters that they can relate to, that they can see themselves in, yeah. and that can sort of normalize a lot of these experiences because it's lonely growing up.
1: And especially, too, I think that, you know, kids can get books from the library. They can get this information without having to go through their parents, without having to go through their church, without having to go through their school. There's something kind of great about that. I remember going to the library when I was a kid and going into the LGBT section, which I think was one shelf in Racine, Wisconsin, you know, in 1988. Um, but but I could do that without anyone watching me. And was that it was like important. like in the occult
0: section? Or yeah, was it? <laughs> it was right next to like New Age, yeah. you know.
1: Um, but that was important. So I think there's something great about YA. I think the other thing I've been thinking about too is Personally, you know, we're doing this podcast about kids and sex education and YA books, and I don't have any kids. I'm not a kid anymore. I probably will never have kids. Um, So I wonder, like, how does this affect me? And the thing that I've been thinking about is that I want all of us to be talking about sex more often. I want this to sort of bleed into everything, because I think the more we talk about sex and we talk about it honestly, openly, the less need we have or the less worries we have about what our kids are going to know. You know, so if we can have these conversations and it's not so scary and it just becomes a part of life and our, our culture isn't so prudish and so Victorian anymore, a lot of this stuff is just gonna catch up.
0: I think it benefits everyone. And I think if there's anything we've learned from the sex therapists who've been on our show, it's that the number one question they get is, you know, I like this or I do this. Am I normal? Right. And I think the more that we talk about sex and sexuality, the more we'll realize, like, there isn't necessarily a normal. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. And, and that's really, once we come to that conclusion and the more people that come to that con- conclusion, you know, that's really what's going to s- sort of start like a sex positivity revolution that will be the tipping point that will allow for sex education that's comprehensive and positive and
1: empowering. Yeah. So to sum up... Talk about sex more often with all your friends, with your family, with strangers on the street, and read YA books. Read in general.
0: Reading is important.
1: Reading is fundamental. <laughs>
0: <Yes>. <laughs> Not to mention some of the YA books are way better than the adult books. But, um, it's just, yeah. yeah. That's it for this episode of HuffPost to love and sex.
1: We want to give a big thank you to our producer, Caitlin Bugucki, and our new editor, Nick Offenberg, as well as our audio engineer, Brad Shannon, and to Lauren Bell, our designer and production assistant. Also, a big special thanks to our sponsor, Squarespace.
0: Please let us know what you think of the show, especially if you have an idea for an episode or want to share your story. You'll find us on Twitter with the handle at HuffPostPodcast.
1: And you can always email us an idea, too. Our email address is Podcast at huffingtonpost.com.
0: And if you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment whenever you subscribe. It helps other people discover our show and sex positivity.
1: And keep clicking those gold stars. If we get more gold stars for this episode, HuffPost is going to fund our very own YA sex book.
0: Our next show will be all about traveling to find sex.
1: Trust us, you're not going to want to miss these globe trotting tales, so make sure you subscribe on iTunes. Bye. Bye.